I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you want to be. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. My guest this week is filmmaker Mike Hodges, the man behind Get Carter, Pulp, The Terminal Man, Prayer for the Dying, Black Rainbow, Croupier, and, of course, the 1980 classic Flash Gordon, which this year is celebrating its 40th anniversary with a 4K re-release. It's been in cinemas. It's now available to own on disc. I caught up with the man who made Gordon alive. What plaything can you offer me today? The planet Earth. It's an attack! Pathetic earthlings! Who can save you now? Flash! They'll kill you! Let's all team up and fight him. Prepare him for torture! I want him. Stop at nothing! Flash Gordon is still alive. Gordon's alive? <laughs> yes! Must be my lucky day. So, um, Mike, welcome to uh, Kermit on Film. Uh, where are you? Uh, we're, we're speaking to each other through Zoom, and I, all I can see is a wall behind you that appears to be completely plastered like some kind of avant-garde collage. Where do, where do I find you? Uh, you find me in the middle of a farm in Dorset, and, and it's a beautiful day except for a wind. There's <laughs> quite a heavy wind here today, but we're on top of a hill. If I go walk out about 100 yards, I can see the Isle of Wight, so we're high. Well, I'm I'm in the New Forest, so I'm not a million miles away from you. And no, in fact, not I, at all. I can see the I can see the Isle of Wight as uh, as well if we go down to the to the coast. And are you are you working on something that that entire that wall behind you looks like a work in progress, or it might just be it might just be a board with mementos tacked to it? What is it? Uh, it's well, it's just a collage over many years. It's sort of memories. My father, my son cartoons, whatever I feel like putting up there. I, you know, I enjoy the, I enjoy having it, that visual behind me. And how have you found lockdown? How have you managed to get things done during it? Well, I, uh, I'm making a film with two people that you know, actually called Sol and, and Ray. They did, uh, uh, in, no, well, to the, to the city. Uh, what's, what's the name of the film that Terence Davies did? 
Oh, of time in the city. Of, of time in the city. Sorry. Yeah. So uh, they came to me a couple of years ago to m- do an equivalent. Uh, needed to say, we, although Terence and I have certain things in common, he was an accountant. I was a chartered. I'm not sure he's a chartered accountant, but I was a chartered accountant. Never practiced. <laughs> and he, we were both brought up as Roman Catholics. Yes. Uh, and there we part company. Uh, but so mine is called, his was called uh, of Time in the City, but I, mine is called All at Sea. And it starts with my national service on the lower deck of a minesweeper, fisher protection in the 1950s. We had to do national service in those days, two years. And through some freak, I ended up in the Royal Navy. And that following that on that, I could have got a commission as a chartered accountant, but I didn't want to be in, in barracks or in a, a or in a, on a large ship like a like an aircraft carrier. So I chose to go on the lower deck, which is the best thing I ever did in the whole of my life. It uh, it changed my view of just about everything. Uh, we were a fishing protection squadron. We went into every hellish. Uh, fishing port in the British Isles. It was a revelation for me. I'd never seen poverty like it in my life. Wow. And so, so are that's you... where I came from. That's where, where it led me to North Shields, where I shot Get Carter, of course. And so are you ma- you're making, the film that you're making is a documentary about your, your, your memories of, that's right, of yes. that period. So it's very similar to Terence's. It's library film pre-recorded music and then a, a commentary written by you, me and, and recorded by me. We finished the edit and now we're trying to get the money to pay for all the clearances for the music and the library film. Whether we'll ever achieve that, I don't know, but it's there and it's finished. Well, as you probably know, Mike, I think that uh, Of Time in the City, Terry's film is, is absolutely wonderful. And this I do like a- too. Yeah, it's, it's. I mean, it's. I thought it was. I thought it was the best film of the year that it came out. Actually, it was. I found it so. I saw it in. Um, I saw it in the Cannes Film Festival, which is not somewhere that I'm very fond of. I find Cannes very difficult. But I was sitting next to Mark Cousins in a screening room, and we literally laughed and cried. Yes. All the way through it, and it was the absolute. It was the highlight of the festival for me. So I'm. I- this project that you're doing sounds, it sounds terrific. Uh, so, so, so you've done the edit, but it's just a matter of getting all the, all the clearances done. Yes, it's, it's getting the finance for this, this, this the next problem. I've never been particularly good at that, Mark. If you look at my CV, you'll see there's some <laughs> rather large gaps. <laughs> but that's, I suppose that's because it, it doesn't matter what a filmmaker's CV is or what extraordinary movies they have on it making movies is always going to be a fight with financiers, isn't it? I don't, I don't think I've ever spoken yeah. to a filmmaker who said, oh, yeah, the money was, was, was easy. It never is, is it, making film? Well, I think, uh, I, I think I, you know, I, I made one film in Los Angeles, but I did, you know, if I stayed in Los Angeles, I probably would have made you know, a lot more films because it's, you, you have to meet people socially in a sense, to get get to the actors, get to the agents, to get... And I, I didn't want to live in L.A., so I think it is difficult. And again, if I was living in France, I'd probably have made, like, you know, Chabron, I'd probably made a film every year uh, because I had a pretty auspicious start with Get Carter. So I... But I, but in this country, there's, there really isn't a movie industry. It was, it was disappearing just when I was making Get Carter, frankly, because MGM were closing their studios while I was making it. Um, so it's very difficult in this country because there's no continuity. So I th- and I don't think it's changed particularly. You'd know more about that than I, I do, frankly. 
I mean, I, you know, I was very good friends with Ken Russell and Ken always said that in, you know, in Europe, they, they kind of, they nurtured and like Fellini, you know, he would be nurtured exactly. and encouraged by his country. But here it was just like, um, Ken once told a story about going to get financing for a movie in which he was interviewed by a 20 year old who said, what have you done before? I was, I was going to make a film with Trevor Preston, which we spent, I don't know, 10 years trying to find, get the finance. It was called the Chinese basket, which is a beautiful title. And it was a beautiful script. And one person said they have to change it. So I said, why? He said, because nobody will know what a busker is. So you are up against it now, which is there's quite a big gap between the people who are the producers and the and old farts like me. I mean, you know, so, um, so that's that. I'd just like to say, Mike, um, uh, on, the comp- on the subject of buskers, I am, and I'm not making this up, I am the holder of the International Street Entertainer of the Year Award 1990 with my skiffle band, the Railtown Bottlers, the double bass of which you can still yes. see in the background. There. Busking was a way of life for me, and I'm shocked that somebody would suggest that they, didn't, they wouldn't know what that, that meant. I did a wonderful documentary on buskers. I, I was, after I left World in Action in the, uh, the mid-60s, I, that went, I took over as producer and, uh, part-time, and part director of an arts program called Tempo. Yeah. Um, and I did, and within that, I did a series called Entertainers, and we did this wonderful film on buskers. They were 25-minute films. And there were some amazing scenes with, the, with Meg, I remember, who was at the end of John Schlesinger's film, do you remember, uh, what the hell was it called? Judy Christie. It's darling. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. That's it. My old memory is slow, but it does catch well up. Yeah, anyway, but right. the end oh, of yeah. Darling, which is Schlesinger's film, you see Meg. So Meg is in the ABC milk bar just off Leicester Square at the, at the end of this film with a guy who is known as Jumping Jack Flash. <laughs> and Jumping Jack Flash, they were counting the pennies. Yeah, on the yeah. counter, they had a big bag, and you see them counting all the pennies. One to you, one for me. And yeah. it's one of the most beautiful scenes. I mean, this film on the busket. And then the, uh, the guy who used to do the sand dance in Piccadilly goes down, you see them go down into the, the lavatory there, the gents' lavatory, and change all the, into their costume, and they go up and they do yeah. the sand dance. I love that film. <laughs> well, I mean, I have to confess that all of that rings completely true with me. I remember we we did a we did four weeks in Edinburgh busking with the bottlers, and what we would do is we you know busk all day long, and then at the end of the day we'd go to a place. It was a chili place. It was called the Pachuco Cantina, and it only served one dish, which was the chili that they had been making all day. And they let us, they'd give us a table and we'd turn all the money that we had into the middle of the table. Then we'd sit there, there was five of us and we'd eat the bowl of chili and we'd count out the money and then we'd give them what it was because they they wanted change. For some reason, they were the only shop in the world that actually wanted change and you'd give them like a plastic bag load of, you know, there we go, five chilies worth of that stuff. Yeah, Yeah, it was, that was counting out the money at the end of a busking day and it was all pennies and five pences and 20, but they, it all kind of added up. Mike, you and I, should make a film together about modern day busking. I mean, you know, with your experience and my double bass, what could go wrong? <laughs> well, you don't want me to busk, I hope. I, no, no, I'm I'll busk it, and then you, you, you make the film. You're the filmmaker. I'm stick these days. <laughs> <laughs> now the tributes from Ardentia. We, the people of Ardentia, 
We have suffered since you blasted our kingdom. I can offer you nothing this year except my loyalty. Prince Thun, we prize nothing more highly. And tell us, how great is this loyalty to your emperor? Without measure. We are delighted to hear it. Follow your sword. Anyway, look, before we get completely off the beaten track, so we're, we're here to talk about Flash Gordon. So Flash Gordon has had this kind of, uh, this uh, 4K treatment, and it's been you know, out in cinemas, and it's coming out on disc, and uh, there's been a lot of interest in it. Again, I, of course, I'm old enough to remember Flash Gordon coming out the first time. Um, tell us how Flash Gordon came about, because by the time you came to Flash Gordon, Fellini, Nick Rogue, a number of people, even George Lucas, I think at one point, had failed to make Flash Gordon. So how did you come to Flash Gordon? Well, it's, it's rather odd because Nick, Nick Rogue, as you know, was, was making, he was involved with Scafiotti, who was the production designer that Bertolucci worked with a lot. And they were, they were fairly well into preparation mm-hmm. when I think, I think uh, this is only a rumour that's, Scafiotti and Dino, the, the producer, the Italian producer, Scafiotti was an aristocrat, and Dino was a, was the son of a pasta maker. And I think this is this is at the root of why they fell out. I suspect. Anyway, the the production fell apart. Now, prior to that, Nick. Dino, being, thinking he's very astute, actually wanted to use all the sets and the considerable expense that was going to be on the production. He wanted to immediately turn around and make a sequel. Mm-hmm. And he was looking for a British director who could write and direct it. So Nick had suggested to me we were friends. So I went to meet Dino at Claridge's. I looked at the scripts. I did, and I said, look, I'm completely the wrong director for this, Dino. I don't think about comics. I I don't know really very much about special effects. Um, I'm, a, I'm a mainly location director. Um, and I said, I, you've got the wrong man, Dino. Anyway, Nick then fell out with him. And for reasons I never quite understood, Dino pursued me and eventually convinced me that I should do the film. When you said to him, look, I'm the wrong guy. This is not the kind of film I make. Because you have the most eclectic CV. But even, you know, I think even everyone who knows the rest of your films are surprised by uh, Flash Gordon. Did he, did he ever say to you, this is why you were the man that I wanted to do this? Well, I, I, I have to confess, he never said that to me. But I, in the middle of the production, by this time, we were, we were friendly. We had a rather bumpy start, but we were good friends by this time. And I'd worked out how to deal with his ego. Okay. Um, and I, uh, so I said to Dino, and Lorenzo Semple was there at the same time, they both suffer from halitosis, which made it very difficult for me to deal with them. And we were all about the same size, so there was no escaping the fumes that came from both of them. I don't know why. Anyway, so I said, Dino, why on earth did you choose me? And I, you know, I was obviously feeling for a compliment, you know, because he had some, he worked with some amazing directors. Yeah. And I thought, he's, Mike, I love your film. You're a great director. Instead of which, he said, Mike, I liked your face. So I said, you liked my face? I'm in the middle of this million dollar movie because you liked my face. And it was, uh, Dino was a peasant. He just, he took, took to my face. He would check the face of the pilots of the planes that he was going on. If he didn't like the look of them, he wouldn't would fly. I mean, he was a very curious man, but he was, a, he was 
he had the, all the qualities of a peasant, which is, you know, we all do, of course. I'm, I'm a hodge, which is a farm labourer. Uh, so I'm not decrying the business of being a peasant, but Dino was still a peasant. I've slightly, I've moved up slightly from, from that, uh, the original uh, origins of my name. Flash. Welcome back from the grave. De Laurentiis De La, De La does always seem to have been one of those larger than life characters. Um, when people start talking about him and they start, he's, a, he's, you know, he, his life is full of stories. Did you get on well with him? Can you, can you de describe for somebody like for say a modern listener, who's not particularly aware of who Dino De Laurentiis is. Can you describe for us what it's like being in his company, meeting him? What kind of guy was he? Well, he's obsessed by film and he loved, he loved filmmaking and he loved filmmakers. He was a megalomaniac, uh, so it was sort of difficult to, to work with. You had to f find a way around it uh, to appease his ego because he, uh, he, he was very much a hands-on director. Some, yeah. you know, Michael Klinger, I may get Carter, once he'd chosen the director, that was it. He'd let you do, get on and do the film. Dino, was not like that. So I had to learn and write quite rapidly how to deal with him. And I put a lot into Flash, got a lot of invention because I, uh, Danilo Donati, who is the production designer, yeah. I'm not sure, my love, by the way, and is incredibly talented. He is. I'm not sure he ever read the script. <laughs> so so I, I, was, I was presented every morning with, I, you know, with all sorts of problems to people in the costumes that they couldn't do the scenes that were meant to be done and so forth. So uh, I was essentially alone and I was basically having to improvise. Uh, I just knew that I would, I was, I couldn't control the film like I could control any other film that I've made, but this one, I really had to improvise. Yeah. But w what I, w what I would do with Dino is at around five o'clock each shooting day, I'd say, Dino, I've had this idea, right? And I tell him what I wanted to do about for the next day's shoot. And he said, Mac, I think about it, you know? So then the next morning with absolute regularity, he'd come to me and say, Mac, I have idea. And he'd tell me his idea. And I'd say, Dino, you're a genius. So it worked. <laughs> it just was wonderful. And I love working with him because he made, he, you got decisions from him. Yeah, and yeah. It was, uh, there were all sorts of, there's one wonderful story with uh, Bob Guccione. Does that ring a bell with you? Yes, of course. But of course, Bob Guccione, who produced Caligula, which Danilo Donati had, of course, uh, production designed, you know, with the, uh, extraordinary, lavish sets, the likes of which Janita Tower had never seen before. That's right, which you couldn't shoot because, I mean, he built a Roman barge with the, with the bows outside of the studio <laughs> doors. Danilo, seriously, Danilo really built design sets for himself. I mean, they just, you know, it's another large ego but with an immense talent. I mean, but, you know, with Arborea, which is, he built these big trees, huge trees. And I said, Dino, where am I going to put the camera? So he said, Mike, he had this line, he'd always say, Mike, how many, when I question him, he said, Mike, how many films do you make? I said, well, seven. He said, Mike, I make 300. 
was always 300. Anyway, so he said to me, you know, I said, Dino, the, the trees are wonderful, but I can't get far enough back to shoot them properly. Mate, how many films you make? I said, seven. I make 300. <laughs> and of course, when we came to the first day of shooting, I couldn't get the camera in there. We had to sort of, all day we're building platforms. so we could, And then we were only getting, a, you know, a section of it, a minor section of it. So Dino was, but he was wonderful. But anyway, Bob, going back to Bob Guccione, but yeah. he was looking for some money from Guccione. So we had this met, uh, meeting with Lorenzo Semple, who is the scriptwriter, myself, Dino, Guccione, his sidekick, and his bodyguard, who was sitting by the door with patently a gun in his pocket <laughs> and looking at the comic, <laughs> sitting there with Flash Gordon, you know, chuckling to himself. <laughs> anyway, so Guccione had come and he, 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 he'd rewritten the script and we'd already started shooting. And uh, so Dino put his, he had a huge desk, his little tiny feet would go up there and he, I could see he was getting very irritated. Anyway, Gucci only had rewritten the whole thing, but I went in to work the following day and Guccione's guy was there and at Shepparton above the stairs, they had his name up, who I can't remember what his name was. Anyway, no. so his name was there and he came into the office and I shot some model shots and he said to me, Mike, you know, I want these model shots to be reshot. Uh, I want my wife to play one of the roles, the one uh, Maria Angela Malato play, played in the film. And I said, uh, you know, I, I got my, my assistant, I said, would you like a coffee? And he said, yes. So I said, okay, I'll get you a coffee. I'm going, I'm just going out for a minute. So I walked up the corridor to the other end of the building, went in to see Dino. Yeah. And I said, Dino, who's producing this film? And I explained what had just happened. Mac, wait here, five minutes, wait. So he goes off. He comes back literally three minutes later. And he goes, bang. So I go back. The guy's vanished. He hasn't <laughs> even drunk his coffee. As I walked up, his, his name was being replaced with <laughs> I never saw him or Guccione or anybody ever again. <laughs> uh, that's Dino. Hero's hit! I'm going in after him! Impetuous boy! Oh, well. Who wants to live forever? One of the remarkable things about Flash Gordon is, in terms of the cast, on the one hand, you have, you know, Max von Sydow, who I think is, you know, arguably one of the greatest actors, you know, of, yes, of, of the I modern agree. On the other hand, you have Sam Jones, who is, you know, like a, a complete newcomer. Now, tell me what it was like working with a cast, which on the one hand had von Sydow and on the other hand had Jones. Well, I mean, the character of Flash is... is uh, is, is curious. I mean, he's, a, he's an innocent, really. Uh, so we ha it, it's quite difficult to find anybody innocent these days, frankly. But in those days, we, we, we happened on Sam, and he was... Uh, Dino's mother-in-law, Silvana Mangano's mother, was English, and she was living in L.A., and she saw... Uh, there, was a, 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 there was a TV game, which was called Celebrity Squares. Yes. I never saw it myself. Anyway... I remember it. Sam was in one of these squares, and because he, uh, he had the kind of comic book look, and she said he'd be good. So Dino w looked at him, flew him over to London, and we, we auditioned him, and he, he was just wonderful. I mean, he's very... 
you know, he, I mean, he was not a great actor and the poor guy got terrible, you know, raspberries in, in rotten tomatoes and things like that. But he was actually perfect for the yes. role. Flash is not the sharpest knife in the drawer, is he? I mean, he's, you know, at my more facetious moments, I've compared Flash Gordon to American foreign policy because they go into <laughs> cultures they have no idea we're about and screw everything up because they, don't, they haven't done the research. Anyway, so Sam's a bit like that. But is it true that at the end of filming that, that there was a there was a falling out between Sam and the rest of the production? Because there's a story that that his dialogue is dubbed by somebody else. Is that true? These are weird. These stories that come out about films. There are quite a lot about Flash Gordon, and that's one of them. Yeah. What happened was that, that Sam, uh, who regretted deeply because I'd met him some years later, what happened? But he, it all slightly went to his head, or. Alternatively, he, he, he got a manager, he got an agent, he got a PR yeah. man. And I think they, want, they tried to screw Dino for more money, right? So we'd finished principal photography and we broke up for Christmas. Sam went back to the US and Dino doesn't like being screwed for money, that's for sure. So they, he just told them to get, get lost. It was a dangerous thing to do because when it comes to publicizing a film like this, uh, you've got to... You, You've got to have your hero out there, you know, on all the talk yeah. shows in America and things like that. Anyway, Sam didn't return. So needless to say, there was some dialogue, like, say, the battle scene on the, you know, on the, the end towards the end of the film, yeah. on the, the wing of the thing, of the, uh, the uh, spaceship. Uh, you know, they, it, Sam's dialogue was fine, but of course there's a lot of sounds. It's a p- perfectly normal film where you've got interruptions in, yeah. in the in the sound quality, do you revoice or or not revoice? Re, get the actor in and redub. Well, of course, Sam wasn't there, so I just got an actor who who impersonated Sam's voice is not difficult to impersonate. So he did. I know maybe five percent of Sam's right. dialogue, but somehow right. and for some reason, even Sam himself, weirdly enough thought I dubbed it all. Um, and it was his voice. He didn't recognize his own voice. Well, he couldn't tell where the joins were. But the guy, Peter Maraca, I think is the name of the actor who did it. And he did a brilliant job. He was, yeah. uh, you know, uh, so uh, th- it's not true, that story. And what about Von Sydow? Because, I mean, I've, I, I interviewed Von Sydow once, and he's one of the very few occasions oh. in which I have been so starstruck I could barely speak being right. in the same room as him. Tell me what it was like working with him. Oh, well, Max, I mean, like you, I mean, I'd seen all of Bergman's films. I mean, I, 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 towards the end, I, I sort of, I, after about six or seven Bergman films, I, I kind of had enough. So I, I, I sort of enjoyed <laughs> but they're so, you know, they're so, oh. And then I went back again towards the end when you had uh, the, the later films, which were wonderful mm. again. But they went, so Max I'd seen, he was a friend of Dino's. He'd worked with him before. So to my astonishment, when Dina said he'd like to do the role, uh, of course I was delighted. What was really wonderful was that, you know, because you've seen him in, in, in the Bergman films, you, you didn't recognize him having a sense of humor, but he has an immense sense of humor and an immense love of living. Um, you know, he died recently, yeah. which is very sad, but yeah. he, was, he was a wonderful person who enjoyed life Unlike all the characters he played for Bergman, I think he was quite relieved to get out from under, I think, in many ways. And uh, he 
was just terribly funny to uh, Ming. He played, you know, he loved cracking his his his, thumb, his finger his fingers, and and he loved, you know, he'd do a little jig and he'd do all sorts of amazingly inventive things with the role. And of course, I, you know, I never went to see him being made up, but it must have taken hours to do yeah. to dress him every day. But he was always uh, highly professional and loved doing it. He really did love doing it. Much to my great, I mean, I'm grateful to him, of course. The tributes of the Hawkman will be first. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It, the, the, the key to the film, and I think the key to the, the reason that the film has endured as much as it has, is that it's, it's comic, but it's not laughing at its subject. It seems to be laughing with it. It's very, very affectionate. Um, do, what, was, it, was it difficult to get the tone of it right? Because it's very, very easy to get that sort of stuff wrong and just as if you're you know, you're sneering at the subject, but Flash Gordon never feels like it's sneering. I mean, it actually, I just watched it again. You know, I've seen it quite a few times. I just watched it again on the, it's, it's, it's very big hearted. It's not cynical at all, is it? No, it isn't. And also the role of the, they're all feisty women too, actually. So I've often been accused of being, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, misogynistic. Um, but it's uh, certainly Flash Gordon, it is not. It's, they're all very feisty ladies. Uh, and I, I think it's a, it was a bit like making a souffle because I had to improvise. And I had this wonderful crew who would, you know, if I came up with an idea, like I decided that one, when the, the, the prince at the very beginning is killed he, and he withdraws the sword, he's, he's, he's got blue blood because he's an aristocrat. And mm. so I would, as I went along, I was making it all up. Uh, the crew would adjust with me. And I I think that, that because I was forced into a situation of improvising, and with the cast, I might add, uh, who went along with the idea, um, I think it was a bit like, a bit like a souffle. We're throwing everything in and hoping it would rise. And I'm glad to say I, it did rise. It's given a lot of pleasure to a lot of people, I must say. And although it's, I've always... <laughs> 
I've always thought it was slightly schizophrenic because when Get Carter was re-released by um, by the BFI, uh, a lot of young people were introduced to it, but they they really could not equate the idea that I had also made Flash Gordon. Yeah. I mean, the, contra- the contrast between the two films so so extraordinary that uh, you think well, I must be totally schizophrenic, frankly. Mike, I must ask you. There's um. There is a there's a there's a there's a sort of soft core Flash Gordon adaptation made in the early 1970s called Flesh Gordon, yes. which I'm sure you're you're aware of, which was famously described by Cine Fantastique magazine as the best mounted turd they had ever seen. <laughs> One of the weird things about Flesh Gordon is that actually some of the design in it is not bad. Have you ever seen it? No. Okay. I have, I seriously have no. My parents were quite shocked. By, my mother was a devout <laughs> Roman Catholic, and I think she thought maybe that's the film I made. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would have that would have unfortunately mean, meant that uh, Max von Sydow played a character called the Emperor Wang, which I think oh, is, is is kind of unlikely. Okay, so. Let's talk about the, the line which has now gone down in history is, you know, the most quoted line ever. Brian Blessed saying Gordon's alive. Now, of course, the, the thing which people coming to um, Flash Gordon for the first time, everyone's heard Brian Blessed now doing Gordon's alive. But of course, in the film, it's a very yeah. low key line. How yeah. did, I mean, he literally goes, Gordon's alive. It's like slightly quizzical. Yeah. How did that become Gordon's alive? Uh, I think it's because of Brian. <laughs> he just goes out there. I mean, he's got stories like it's the Queen's favourite film. I mean, I, but, but Brian is Brian, and of course, he, I think he's got slightly madder since he, we, we, we made the film. I think it's you know he he went up, he climbed so many mountains, and he nearly died, and you know he's kind of sort of, and he's a black belt, and he you know he's a he's a sort of he's a character, and he. I think he genuinely loves the film. And, uh, yeah, he does. The film is, the film is you know, being good to him as well in many ways. So, I, it's, you know, Brian just gets bigger and bigger, and I'm sure it'll be even louder the next time you hear it, if you ever hear it again. But no, that was down to Brian, actually. I know you're only waiting for the right moment to attack him. Yes! And Ming knows that too. So, by delivering you, I allay his suspicions. <laughs> I gain time. Our weapons are inferior. We need another year's preparation. Ming's not unbeatable. With all his men, he couldn't even kill Flash. Gordon's alive. He's in our boyer. Prince Baron is aiding him. Baron! I tell you, now is the time to strike. Am I right in thinking that, that, Flash, that Flash Gordon is the film that made... Brian Blessed, a household name. I mean, was he, was, well, how starry was he when you made that film? Not really. I mean, he'd done Zed Cars and he'd done, I did, did, I, did I, Claudius, I think. I mean, oh, okay. Done, I clapped it. Oh. I think he'd done uh, BBC drama, but outside of that, really not a lot. I hope I'm not maligning him. I don't, he certainly wasn't big in films, that's for sure, in the cinema. So how so was I he? Think, how was he cast? What what was it about him that made him the right person? Uh, it's sheer force of personality. And there's a very funny story, really, because Dino would go off on all sorts of crazy, run with crazy ideas. And my son was a great rugby fan, so uh, I used to come back down here to Dorset every Saturday morning 
And he and I and my other son would watch England playing Wales or whatever. So Dino, of course, being Italian, was a football fan. Anyway, this particular, we had a meeting, always had a meeting Saturday mornings in uh, Park Lane where his office was there. And then I drive down to Dorset and I'm watching the game and the phone rings and it's Dina, Mag, you watch game? Yes. <laughs> Men in red. Yes. So he, the Welsh team, he said, number nine, number 15, number 11. They all got, they all had beards. Right. <laughs> and of course, rugby in those days was, was a, an amateur sport. Yes. So Dino, I said, Dino, you know, these are, but doctors and dentists, they're not going to want to hang on wires for three months while we, we film this. Oh, Mike. So he just hung up and that was the end of that story. But Brian, he's just right. I can't explain anything. Uh, again, it was a sort of difficult role to, to cast in many ways. Let's talk a little bit about the soundtrack. Um, I think there was a, a number of people because of when the film came out. It was the point at which a um, you know a, a pop group associated with the film meant that there was video. So I think a lot of people got to know of Flash Gordon because of because of the Queen soundtrack. Were you a Queen fan beforehand? Did you were you you know a fan of their music? I've I have to say I, mean, I in the sixties uh, I knew. I knew so much about pop music that I I was fine. As I got older, you know, I, I, I went for the more serious end of it. I was kind of Pink Floyd flan and so on. And I like Queen. It's, a, it's almost impossible not to like them in many ways because they're so effervescent. And, uh, but I never thought of them to do, to do the, the track for Flash Gordon. I'm not quite sure. I think Dino met their manager. Um, and that's how it came about. And I'm delighted because they, they, I mean, they were absolute joy to work with for a start. And uh, they, they provide me with an amazing soundtrack. You know. How closely did you work with them? Did you, were you in personal contact with them or was it? Just... Oh, every, we, they, they would do sort of uh, sample, sample tracks. And then the editor, Malcolm Cook, and I would sort of fix fixed them into the film wherever they, they suited. And then we went, we had 21 days of recording with them. Now, of course, they would come in one at a time, basically, because there was a lot of overdubbing and things like that. Yeah. So we'd work, it was absolutely exhausting, but it was also very extremely exhilarating because I mean, we worked from two o'clock, you know, rock, rock, rock star hours, two o'clock in the afternoon till five, six, seven in the morning. And that was 21 days, consecutive days. I mean, yeah. I, first of all, my ears were really beginning to suffer. <laughs> and secondly, it was, it was exhausting. As I said, though, at the same time, it was incredibly exhilarating because they were providing me with, you know, they were transforming the film in many ways. I, I, you know, I can't deny that. Um, and it, so they, we, you know, I became, we became friends, particularly Brian May and I became really quite close friends. Freddie was Freddie, and uh, it was it was a delight. There was no problems whatsoever. The problem came afterwards because we needed an extra forty five minutes orchestral music yeah. based on their themes. Yes, right? um, and the they had chosen a, a very good arranger that they knew, 
uh, to do the 45 minutes. And I would ke- check with him all the time. Was he getting all the music done? When we, so of the day we finished at you know, five in the morning, I then had to go to the studio where we had our first music uh, orchestral session. And uh, we had about seven or eight sessions booked with, with 70 musicians, you know. Yeah. And the poor arranger turned up and we only recorded two minutes. So you, you, you want to do an average of about four minutes a session yeah. or five minutes even preferably. So we did this in two minutes and then I said, are you okay for, for the rest of it? You know, he said, yeah, fine. So it was the, that was the Saturday. Well, the Monday I went into the studio and his agent rang me and said, could you meet him outside of the studio? And I said, no, no, I'm sorry. He's got to come in here. So... It turned out he, something had gone wrong. I don't know what it was, but he'd only done two and a half minutes composed, you know, instead of 45. So we, you know, again, this is Dino. I, I was absolutely shattered when I, when this happened. And Dino wasn't there. So I rang him and said, Dino, we've got a real problem here because we've got all these sessions booked and we haven't got the, haven't got the, the music written. So, you know, and he just cancelled all the sessions and we got in, um, we brought in Howard. Howard Blake. And he, Howard Blake, and he just performed, and nearly killed him, I think, but he, I, I think he did it in about 10 days or something like that. Yeah. We, we reinstated all the, the sessions and, uh, and he, did, he did a brilliant job. I mean, he really was brilliant. You said, you said when you were describing Queen, because I've met um, Brian May and Roger Taylor, who, you know, I was very, Queen were the first proper big rock band I ever saw live. I'd seen Dr. Feelgood um, in the Hammersmith Odeon, but before that, I saw Queen in Hyde Park in 1976. It was an open, it was like a free fest, and I just, I couldn't believe, I was completely starstruck. So I met Brian May and Roger Taylor, and they were lovely, but I never met Freddie Mercury. And you said, Freddie was Freddie. Um, (laughs) Just expand on that. Well, he, I mean, they're, they're, Brian and he, in the sense of the two main, you know, uh, Roger and, and, uh, uh, John, and Deacon. The two, John Deacon, the other one. John Deacon, yes. And they're, yeah. they're, I like them all, but they're all totally different characters. And I think because they all have independent talents, they managed to stay together. They're very, you know, most rock bands break up. And they, but yeah. there wasn't, they, they sort of, particularly Brian and, and uh, Freddie, but F- Freddie, as we all know, was, was you know, immensely energetic, incredibly talented. Um, and, but I remember when we were shooting, he came in and he bought a house, the house that he died in, actually. And he said, I just bought this house. I, I said, how much? <laughs> we were talking 1979, 1980. He said, like, £750,000 cash. <laughs> you know, so, so it was, so it was sort of like a, it was a different world, but he was incredibly likable and, and immensely uh, immensely talented. I mean, that, that falsetto voice he uses when they're when they're sort of leaving the, when Flash and Dale are out on the rock, and it's just w- wonderful. I heard Brian May talking about it recently. He said, of course, he normally at a concert he couldn't possibly use the, that aspect of his voice because it would be too much, you know, too much pressure. So when the film was finished and it, it opened, I remember it being a hit here in the UK and I remember it being sort of very well received. How was it received around the rest of the world? I've seen, um, you know, very divergent reviews. I know so, some critics really liked it. Some critics were sniffy about it, but how did it do around the rest of the world? 
I mean, it, meant, it did incredibly well in all the Latin American colours because I mean, uh, countries because of the the prime colours which they they loved, which I I love about the film. It's yeah. it's, it's not dull. It's really vibrant and uh, yeah. Uh, and it's and it also is true to the comic strip. I mean, I when I came to shoot it, you know, I I didn't really have to look far beyond the the original strip cartoon because so it dictated the way the, that I shot. Now, in terms of its reception, it was very well. In America, I think what the problem was that uh, that, that without uh, without Sam to publicise it, uh, it wasn't as didn't make as much money as they'd hoped i went out prior to the release to test the film all around america we went to san diego los angeles uh new york uh phoenix so i went around the whole of the states and i'd never been through all this kind of process it's absolutely hysterical because they have people with stopwatches in the foyer so that when people run out to the kids particularly run out to get their popcorn they they get the time to see how anxious they are to get back in other words this is meant to indicate whether they're enjoying the film i mean there's all goggly <laughs> goop i mean i can't tell you but, and, and then we fly around and there was a, a it was one of those great big editors, the female editors that we that that, that want, she wanted to get her hands on the film actually I think, and she was part of the entourage, and we used to always sit on either side of the the corridor on the plane, and she passed me said Mike look at this one, so I look at this, <laughs> someone was like this film is shit, <laughs> and I take the, and I pass one of my back. It's like Happy Families. I say no, about this one. It says this film is the best film I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> and there were all sorts of politics to try and get their hands onto this film. It's, 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 it was pretty, but I can tell you that the on the tour it was just exciting that people loved the film. Uh, I don't know if the critics, you know, here were, were a bit sniffy. I think part of the problem was that I, Dino love. He's an old showman. He sort of loved to say how much money was spent. I, I don't think the figures he was pushing out. You remember those days with, with uh, Quo Vardis and all they say, you know, yeah, yeah. this production used 10 million pairs of sandals and, you know, all this sort of stuff. Adina was one yeah. of the old time, you know, so he, I think he was bumping up what they actually cost because none of, the, none of the actors cost very much. I didn't cost all that much. By, I'm talking about uh, you know, the contemporaries, uh, filmmaking at the time. So I, I don't think it was ever, ever quite... When we were shooting it, they, Danilo Donati had a, all the artisans were from Italy. They're all living around Shepparton. It was lovely to see all these Italians in, in B and Bs around Shepparton. Mean, you know, but the food was pretty dire, and they couldn't understand England at all. But they were incredible workers. They were, you know, they were making the costumes, they were making the the props and everything. They were, they were, and they were a wonderful lot. But I don't, I suspect they weren't paid too much either. So I don't think the the cost of the film was. Ever. But anyway, some of the critics, uh, you know, thought it was a waste of money. So I don't know how can you judge something like that. I mean, I was I. I always thought that stuff about, you know, you refer to the, you know, Quo Vardis. I always remember there was a publicity uh, phrase that was used when Cleopatra came out, which said the largest Navy in the world now belongs to Fox because they've made so many ships in order. And they were absolutely using that as a selling point. But I think honestly, in the case of Flash Gordon, nobody who saw it cared what any critics thought anyway. I think everybody went to see Flash Gordon because they went to see Flash Gordon. And I, in the days before the internet, 
I think a lot of people didn't even know what critics thought. Nowadays, you can go on Rotten Tomatoes and you can get percentages and all the rest of it. But I mean, I remember going to the cinema without having ever read reviews of things. No, I remember I just seeing a poster for Flash Gordon and thinking, that looks great. I'll go and see that because it looks no. big and colourful and, and exciting. And I think well, there, was, there was that kind of enthusiasm for it. Yes, I think one of the sad things about that, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I hesitate before I say this because I, I'm not insulting your profession. No, but go I ahead. Think, but but I, I think it's not what, it's, it's the fact that it's become such a prominent element to going to films that the best times I ever have were when I went to a cinema, a film that I knew nothing about and was then utterly yeah. surprised because the conditioning process, I mean, I tend not to read reviews nowadays, but I don't see many films either. But the, but the you know the surprise the conditioning process you're put into I think is is a bit much now frankly so, so you, it does affect the way you look at a film I think I, I, I do, well I think I mean I think the, the I think one of the things that's really weird is the fact that everybody now from their smartphone can find out how much money a film took on its opening night I mean yeah. nobody ever used to ask about box office. Nobody ever used to. Nobody ever used to know unless you got Variety. And who on earth in in England, outside of the industry, got Variety? Well, nowadays everybody knows. I think so. I think that's weird. And I share. I share, share your feeling about sometimes the best way to see a film is knowing nothing about it. It's just yes, stumbling just, into. The, the trouble is that's difficult now, actually, in many ways. Yes. It's very difficult. I remember the other going thing to is, see, of course, um, that people know the mystique of cinema has also been real because they know how how they're made now. I mean, I, I think when you when you start making films, quite a lot of edge disappears because you can watch a film, you can see because you're a reasonably experienced director, you can see how it's been achieved. So you, a film has to be exceptionally good to really take take you over. Also, I did the pro, when I was doing Tempo, we did the thing with Orson Welles. And uh, there was a very funny, we had the, the, the soundtrack would be handed into a typing pool. And Wells was uh, discussing uh, a big question. And he said, you've got a reputation for being a slow director. So the typing pool came back and says, I've got a reputation for being the fattest director ever. Right. So the second unbelievable thing was happening. The interviewer said to him, have you ever let a film crew in to see you at work? And Wells said, absolutely not. He said, would Albert Einstein have let the crew into his laboratory instead of laboratory? He came back into his laboratory to see how he, the typing pool became one of my, you know, <laughs> best sources of jokes at that time. Do you, Ming the Merciless, ruler of the universe, take this earthling, Dale Arden, to be your empress of the hour? Of the hour, yes. You promise to use her as you will? Certainly. Not to blast her into space? Until such time as you grow weary of her. I do. I do not. So, Mike, look, just to kind of bring this to a close... after all this time, going back to, you know, to look at the film again for the, you know, for the, the new spanking new version, how did it, how, how, how do you feel about it? How does it look to you? Do you still have, do you still have affection for it? Oh, yes. I mean, I, they, they had a BFI put on. I'm very grateful to the BFI. One, because they, they saved Croupier, by the way, from going to VHS. Yeah. And yeah. they resuscitated Get Carter. You know, I've got a lot to owe the BFI, actually. Anyway, so they had a big showing on one of those massive screens in the forecourt of the British Museum. I don't know, it was a couple of years ago or whatever. Yeah. 
And I went, blessed was I needn't have bothered, of course, but I, anyway, I insisted that I talk first before Brian. <laughs> and he, he, he went over the top as usual. Anyway, the, I was only going to just stay there to introduce it, and then I was going to come away. So I, but I was curious because I'd never seen such a huge screen. And I started watching it. And I just couldn't believe it. I mean, the quality and the soundtrack was just amazing. Needless to say, I stayed to the end. And I'm glad I did. That's the last time I'll ever see it. But I, I, it really worked for me. <laughs> so it's, you reach a point where you, may as, you didn't really direct it, actually. or it's Somebody else directed it. So it's, and it was so long ago. But, um, uh, but I, I, it works, I think. I honestly think that uh, it's one of those films that it, it hasn't aged because it looks as, and I'll, I mean this in a good way, Mike, it looks as bonkers today yes. as it did the first time I saw it. And, you know, you said nowadays we know, we know how films are made. I'm looking at Flash Gordon and think, how did this get made? I mean, I, you know, it's, it's well, such... Can you imagine? Can you imagine what it feels like making it? No, I mean, I can't. I, well, especially you see, we, we until we got the 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 skies worked out, right? There was just this blue blacking. So I was directing all this stuff, not knowing where we we had no idea where we were going to go with the skies. Dino had a painter come in, and he painted a still painting. I said, Dino, what's what use is that? To it's a still, it's a painting. That's all, Mac. <laughs> Same thing. How many films you make? Seven. I make three hundred. Of course, we never used the painting. Someone nicked it. And he's trying to get his money back from it. <laughs> oh god. So I mean, it's bonkers, but also making it was bonkers. <laughs> well, Mike, look, it's been a real pleasure talking to you about it. And uh, as I said, it just—I think that I think it's a joy. I think it still continues to to entertain and baffle in the same way that it did when it first came out. And I think you should be very, well, you are, but I think you should be very, very proud of it. Thank you so much for coming and talking to me on the podcast. I hope to see you again in the flesh at some point, you know, when all this, uh, when all yes. this business is behind Any us. help you can do with All at Sea, I'd be grateful. Hey, that sounds really interesting because as I said, I'm a huge fan of Time in the City and that, you know, the, 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 the film that you're describing to me sounds, you know, oh, it sounds is. great. I think so. it's really, it's a very interesting film, I think. Well, it's if different. It's different to Davies, of course. But no, of course. Well, I mean, yes, of course, it's because that Ter Terence Davies' film is the film that only Terence Davies could have exactly, made. Yes. Um, and anyway. I'm sure that yours will be the same. So, look, if there's anything I can do, yes. please do not hesitate to ask. Mike, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been lovely speaking lovely. to you. My thanks to the great Mike Hodges for coming on the Coming On Film podcast to talk about, amongst other things, Flash Gordon, which is now available in a 4K restoration on Blu-ray. Thanks so much for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, remember to subscribe and tell your friends. Uh, you can also visit our Patreon page, which has got exclusive video content, including some video of me and Mike having this conversation. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. Keep watching the skies. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.